Well, I have some bad news to break to you. I know some of you are in denial about this. I heard someone just yesterday tell me the very opposite of this, but fall is here. <clears throat> I don't know about winter in Alaska, but I know fall when I see it. When my breath fogs as I walk to the post office, when I see V-shaped formations of birds flying overhead to the south, when um, when uh, I'll, I'll grant you, the leaves are only just beginning to turn, but there's a little of it. When I look to the east and I see snow on the mountains, okay, not last year's leftover snow, no, but this year's snow, I say to myself, you know, fall has come. And and that's a bad thing, or, or it, it, it can be a bad thing. I'm going to explain to you why it's a bad thing here. So if you're thinking fall, it's not that bad. Like I said, you're in denial. So um, fall, fall means two things. On the one hand, it means... It means that um, that uh, vacation is over, right? That the pace is going to pick up a little bit. You're going to go back to school, or you're going to you're going to start working a little harder on those indoor projects or whatever. Uh, it just kind of means that you're going to kind of go back to work. the The year is is resuming its normal pace, and and we're going to do some of that next year. Next year, I'm going to uh, next year, next week, next week, I'm going to kick off a, a teaching series. Uh, that's kind of a new thing for me, um, and uh, you you get to be my guinea pigs. But that's going to be kind of we're back back in the in the full swing of things. But fall also means something else. Fall means change. You know, summer and winter don't really mean change. The you know the whole thing, endless summer, right? No one would believe it if you said endless fall or endless spring. But summer kind of feels that way. It's every day is pretty much the same. This year that wasn't true because a lot of them were kind of lousy. But but um, but I'm sure that that they were nice somewhere. Um, but summer and winter are kind of every day is the same. You don't you don't have a sense of change so much during summer and winter. But spring and fall are the seasons where things change. You you experience more of a sense of change. But there's a difference there because spring it's the little changes, right? You you look outside and I think the tree's got some buds on it, right? You know, oh oh good. Um, or you say it looks like the snow's not quite as deep now. Or or you say I saw bunny rabbits hopping through the snow or whatever. You you see little clues that summer may eventually arrive someday. But fall shows you it's changed. Fall is out and proud. Fall is is in your face. Fall is a riot of color. It's it's obnoxious. Fall wants you to know things are changing. You better batten down the hatches because winter's coming. Fall is a falls an aggressive, obnoxious change of seasons. And I don't like fall because I don't like change. I certainly don't like change for its own sake. I mean, if something is bad, okay, sure, I like change, right? But in general, do I just like novelty for its own sake? No, I don't. When when um, when we lived in Indiana, uh, uh, the the, biz, the the building I worked in was in a, a developed area. There's a lot of uh, commerce and uh, all sorts of things there, and so uh, I could go anywhere I want for lunch. Um, there's any number of uh, fast food places and sit-down restaurants and so forth. And for two years, two and a half years, I went to uh, Taco Bell. And I got the same thing to eat every day, um, five days a week, because I don't like change, okay? Um, I could have gotten, you know, the Crunchwrap Supreme or whatever, but I got the bean burrito. So there it is, okay? I'm, I'm, I'm not big on change for its own sake. And I don't know if it was, if it was uh, something deep about me disliking change, or if maybe if there was any depth to it at all, it's that I was looking for some stability. It's like I've got a million decisions to make. I've got all kinds of things going on at work and at home, and and 
the last thing I need now is to have to go to a restaurant and sweat what's on the menu. So it's just kind of like, I can just go there, I can order the number two and be done, right? Uh, it was just an easy thing. I didn't like the change. So I'm not all about the novelty. And fall is all about novelty. And, and uh, that's a problem for me because it, it reminds me that I am in the wrong vocation. If, if, if I'm opposed to change, if I don't like change, I'm in the wrong vocation because the church is going through all kinds of change right now. The church, just in the time I have been a pastor, which is not that long, the church has changed. Certainly, um, since I became a Christian 20 years ago, the church has changed enormously, and a lot of you have experienced even greater change. The church, uh, some of the changes have been very obvious. Uh, the change, probably the most obvious thing that has changed in the church in the last generation or so is the way we conduct our worship services. Um, you see, there was a time when every church had, had traditional worship. Um, they all looked like that. And while this church has a choir, we don't have choir robes, right? And nowadays, what we see in a lot of churches looks more like this. Um, uh, that's at Mariner's Church in, um, in uh, uh, Irvine, California. So um, I, I have never seen a church quite like that before. But, but there are churches that do that. So, so you see that there's a spectrum, and church has changed. What, what we expect from worship has changed. Uh, but not just worship, liturgy has changed. Even in liturgical churches, the, the Methodist church, the Presbyterian church, churches that have set prayers and, and a rich tradition that we draw on of, of how worship is supposed to be conducted, the liturgy of the church has been stripped down and really simplified in a lot of churches. Um, uh, we have a different dress code. I, I'm wearing a tie today, but I don't see many others. I see Kurt's got one. All right. But uh, there's not too many people wearing ties today, and, and that's just the way that the church reflects society. You don't see nearly as many ties out there um, in business either as you did uh, 20, 30 years ago. The church has changed a lot. But in some ways, the church has changed in ways that makes me wonder if maybe it's kind of autumn headed toward winter. Uh, there are some disquieting ways the church has changed. Um, uh, I, I, I saw a s- survey in 2009... Uh, the Pew organization conducted a survey and they said that, um, or they discovered that in this country, 78% of people consider themselves Christian now, uh, down from probably a century ago, pretty much everybody would have at least said it. 51% of, of our country considers themselves Protestant and 18% consider themselves part of the Protestant mainline, which would be churches like the Presbyterian Church, the Methodist Church, uh, Lutheran Church, Things like that would be the Protestant mainline. And just 18%, one in five people in this country considers themselves part of the mainline, which makes you wonder how mainline can it be if uh, four out of five people don't have anything to do with it. So so we see that sort of trend going on in the church. The Presbyterian Church USA uh, has an office, of course, uh, probably a committee too, um, that keeps track of these things. And they released a statistic this spring that said in 2011... The PCUSA uh, fell below two million members for the first time since uh, since it uh, was unified back in the um, uh, previous generation. Um, and in fact, just in the last 12 years, since 1999, if there was 100 people in a Presbyterian church in 1999, then this year there would be 76. And that's during a period of time in which uh, uh, the population as a whole has grown by 15%. So you'd need to add 15 just to keep up with population growth. 
and instead we've fallen by 24. So the church has been shrinking both in members and in churches. We have dismissed or closed 750 churches in 12 years. The church is changing, and not just in its liturgy. The Methodist stats, I haven't figured out where they hide those on their website. I was able to find a few. Um, uh, it's about four times the size of the Presbyterian church. So when you hear 1% loss, that means four times as many people, right? So um, it has reduced in membership by about uh, 1% uh, in the last year for each of the past uh, dozen years. And it's reduced in worship attendance by more than 2%. So they're slow about... Uh, acknowledging the people are really not coming back. So, um, so from some very disquieting trends in worship, and it's not just in the mainline. Uh, this is true across the church. In the evangelical church, uh, the Southern Baptist Convention, the largest denomination in America, they've uh, announced they've had three straight years of decline there as well. So the church is changing in ways. Some of them are are positive. Maybe if you like, you know, contemporary music. If you like light shows and smoke. Um, there's ways the church is changing that are positive, but there are a lot of ways that are very disquieting. What does this change mean for us? So I want to talk today, what can we as a community of faith do with change? What should we make of change, particularly a change that is disquieting or uncomfortable in the church? What should we do with it? Is there a way that we can celebrate what the church was without trying to live in the past? Is there something we can do as people of faith to uh, to to um, to learn from the past and uh, retain what was good about it without trying to live there. And of course, I think that we can, and that's why I want to look at the lesson today from from Elijah. Um, the lesson I would summarize this way, and you can check me at the end if I'm right or wrong. Um, I would say the lesson we get from from Elijah is that we should be successors and not curators that we as people of faith are called not to be curators, but to be successors. So I want to look at this story where Elijah passes his mantle to his successor, Elisha. I'm, that's a pronunciation thing I'm doing. Because the names sound so much alike, I'm using the, the cool, went to, went to seminary, pronounce it like Hebrew school, Elisha. Ooh. So Elisha is the one you never hear about. Elijah is the one you do hear about all the time. Uh, and you do hear about Elijah all the time. He's the most famous. He's the most famous um, uh, uh, prophet in the Old Testament. He is. Uh, he's. He became. His name became a shorthand for for prophet. The way you might say Einstein, if you mean scientist or something like that. Elijah meant prophet. So if you were Jeremiah or Isaiah or Amos or any of those others, people just kind of used Elijah to refer to you. And that's really amazing because there's no book of the prophet. Elijah. There's just stories about Elijah. So we don't actually know all the details of his prophetic ministry. We only have some hints about it that come to through this historical book of First and Second Kings. But what we find there is the reason he was a great prophet is because he took on the powers that that were at work in his in his uh, nation at the time. Uh, Israel was ruled by an evil king named Ahab and uh, his evil queen, maybe even more evil queen, Jezebel. And uh, uh, Elijah confronted them. He spoke on behalf of the people of God, on behalf of God, for the people of God, uh, saying, what you're doing is wrong. And in particular, what you're doing with this uh, false religion, you're encouraging the, 
the religion of Baal and this whole prof- uh, 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 cult that had been established around Baal. Everything you're doing is evil and wrong. And so he took them on and did some, some amazing miracles. He, uh, he, uh, I can't summarize First Kings, but go read it. Um, he did all kinds of good things. But among other things, um, he was the only person in the Old Testament. He's one of only two people in the Old Testament who, who did not die. He's only one of two people in the Bible who did not die. Even Jesus died. Um, but Elijah is one of only two people who did not die. The other is a man named Enosh in uh, Genesis. And he is one of only two people who ascended to heaven. He's the only one in the Old Testament. Jesus is the other one from the New Testament. So Elijah is a great man. When Jesus is trying to describe how important John the Baptist is, he says, John the Baptist is so important, he's kind of like Elijah. He is Elijah come again. So that's how important a figure Elijah was. But the problem is, good things come to an end. Elijah's leaving. Everybody seems to know it here. Um, everybody knows that Elijah is going. It says, when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way to Gilgal. So so every, everyone seems to know this, although Elijah is kind of like trying to make sure that Elisha doesn't see it or something. He keeps trying to peel uh, Elisha off, and Elisha keeps saying, as the Lord lives and as you live, no, I'm sticking with you. I'm going to stick with you. And uh, then these companies of prophets, these are schools or uh, disciple, groups of disciples, they come along and they say, did you know that he's going away today? And, and he says, yes, I did know. Be quiet. And so they go from one town to the other. They start in Gilgal, they go to Bethel, and they finally wind up at the Jordan River. And they, they cross the Jordan River. But it's interesting. This is, it's interesting because this is where he performs his last miracle. Eli, uh, Elijah takes off his mantle. Um, a mantle is an outer garment. It's kind of like a, an overcoat, right? It's on top of all the other clothes. So he takes that off and um, he rolls it up and he strikes the water. And uh, he is able to cross the Jordan River on dry land. The water piles up and the two of them cross the Jordan uh, going east um, across uh, the Jordan on dry land. Now, that doesn't, you know, it's not that great of a miracle. The Jordan is not that big of a river. But it's very significant because the Jordan River was what Israel crossed going the other direction when they came to the Holy Land. They had been down in Egypt as slaves. They traveled around in the wilderness for a long time and then they finally crossed going, going from east to west across the Jordan River on dry land. Here, Elijah and Elisha are going the opposite direction. What's significant about the east? What's significant about the east is that's where Moses is. No one knows where Moses' grave is, but Moses died on the east side of the Jordan. So now Elijah is going, in a sense, to be with Moses. Um, he's actually going to ascend to heaven, but he's taking himself out of the game. He is not part of what's going to happen in Israel from this point forward, just as Moses has not been. Moses' ministry came to an end, and Joshua took over. And so Elijah is now going back to the place where Moses is. His ministry is over. So he he and Elijah are walking together, and Elijah says to Elisha, he says, is there anything I can do for you? Tell me what I may do for you before I'm taken from you. And Elisha says, please let me inherit a double share of your spirit. Now, uh, culturally, the way that that worked in those days is if you had um, an estate, what you'd do is you'd add up the total number of heirs, and then you'd add one. And then you give two shares 
to the eldest son. So if there were five kids, then you'd divide it into six piles and you'd give one of them two piles. The eldest son, he got two piles because he was the official heir. He was the successor. So Elisha is saying, I want to be your successor. I want to be the one that everybody looks at and says, I'm his oldest son. I'm the one who, who follows, who succeeds you in your ministry. So he's saying, I want a double portion of your spirit. And Elijah says, well, I don't know if you've been paying attention, but it has not been an easy life. What you've asked for is very hard. But you're a grown-up. Um, uh, we'll see. God may do exactly what you ask. Let's find out. He says, if you see me as I'm taken from you, then yes, you will have what you ask for. You will be my successor. And if not, well, no. So they're walking along and talking, and then they're divided. All this point, Elisha has said, I'm not leaving you. I'm not going to be parted from you. You can't peel me off, right? I'm sticking with you. But now God intervenes, sends a chariot of fire and horses of fire, and they are separated. Elisha cannot be with him anymore. And now Elijah ascends into heaven. He's taken up into heaven in a whirlwind. So what does Elisha do? Elisha watches and cries, Father, Father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. What he probably means here is not that, he may be talking about the chariot of fire and the horses of fire, but I don't think so. I think what he's saying is, uh, to us a chariot is just some obsolete kind of contraption people rode around in. But in this culture, a chariot is an instrument of warfare. Only kings and generals and people like that, cavalry, used chariots. And he's saying, you have been an incredible warrior on behalf of God. You have fought with kings and queens, and now you're gone. But he doesn't just celebrate his ministry. He doesn't just say, oh, you know, too bad, what are we going to do now? He says, Father, Father. He says, you have been a spiritual father to me, and now you're gone. He grieves Elijah's loss. He tears his clothes. That's something they would do too. They would rip their clothes uh, to show they were in, in mourning. It was something widows would do. So he rips his clothes. He's in mourning. He cries out, Father, Father. And he says, you've been this warrior on behalf of the cause of the, the, the Lord. And now you're gone. And that's a natural thing to do. We would think less of Elijah, uh, of Elisha if he didn't. If he could just kind of shrug and, and go on about his business without any, any sign of emotion or concern, we would think, what kind of weird person is Elisha? It is perfectly normal and natural to grieve good things when they're taken from us. We know that from our relationships, but it's true in every aspect of our life. It's certainly true of the church. We can look at the church, the historical church, and say there are good things that we have lost that have been taken from us, and we can grieve them. But see what happens next. Elisha picks up the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him. And he went back and stood in the bank of the Jordan. He took the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? He says, I know God has been with me as long as Elijah's been around because God's been with Elijah. But is he still with me or is he just with Elijah now? He says, Where is the Lord, the God of Israel? And so he does the same thing. He strikes the water with the mantle. The water divides, 
and he walks across, just like Joshua had done centuries ago, he walks back from this kind of sideline area on the east side of the Jordan, back into the arena, back into battle with the kings and queens of Israel. And in fact, uh, we know that he does go into battle. In fact, he actually anoints a general who stages a coup. And he is instrumental in eliminating that, that nasty uh, um, group of kings, the, the family of kings uh, Ahab and his family. Um, uh, Elisha is instrumental in overturning them, not because this general is so great, but because Ahab and Jezebel were so bad, God would not countenance them any longer. So he has a role. He performs actually more miracles, or at least more are recorded, than Elijah does. He has a great ministry, not as great as Elijah, because Elijah is the greatest uh, prophet in Israel's history, but he has a great ministry of his own. Now compare that with the people he comes across here. When the company of prophets who were at Jericho saw him at a distance, they declared, the spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. They say, all right, the torch has passed, the mantle's been passed, um, and now we have a new leader we can look to for guidance. But not really, because they say, let's go find Elijah. Because this is not very pleasant. The the horses and chariots of Israel, our, our warrior, our prophet, our leader, he's gone, we want him back. And Elisha says, no. He's gone. And they say, oh, but we need him. And he says, no. And they say, oh, but I thought you liked him. And finally, he says, "He says, all right, fine, go look for him. And so 50 men spend three days combing the hills looking for any trace of Elijah. And of course, they don't find it because Elijah's gone. They paid lip service to the idea of the transition, but their hearts weren't in it. They were still looking for the past. They were curators. They were not successors. Elijah had one successor here, and that is Elisha. He said, give me a double portion of your spirit, and he is now the successor. What do we do with this? The lesson for us is the same. The past is the past. There are things we can celebrate, but the way we are faithful to our calling is not by being curators of a past that is gone, but by being successors and moving into the same arena where the predecessor did his ministry. And like Elijah said to Elisha, it is a hard thing you ask for. It's not easy. It would be so much easier if everything would be the same for us as it was for the generation that came before, because then we could do it right this time, right? We could learn from their mistakes and not make them ourselves. But instead, we're in the same boat they are. We're going to make our own all-new mistakes. It's a hard thing that we're called to. But it is our calling. It's the calling the church has always faced. If we look for stability anywhere but God, we won't find it. God is unchanging. If we want an island of stability, God is where we look for that. But the church is here on earth. And so it must change as society changes. Sometimes it changes society. The church is what overturned the Roman Empire. The church is what uh, changed Europe in the Middle Ages with the Protestant Reformation. The church uh, is how slave the slave trade was outlawed. The church changes society itself. And because of that, the church has to be able to change as well. The church will endure And we can celebrate what it does that was good. But we must do so as successors 
and not as curators. We are replacements for those who came before. Let us be successors. Amen.